Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Hello, Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Douglas Bell. Today, I'll be speaking with Christine Coy, the Lewis, Catherine, and Benjamin Price Professor of European History at Louisiana State University. We'll be talking about her wonderful new book, Reformation in the Low Countries, 1500 to 1620, published by Cambridge University Press. Christine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Douglas. I'm very happy to be here. Great. Uh, Can you tell the listeners a little bit about your background and what drew you to become a scholar of the Low Countries? Sure. Well, um, it's it's mostly it's it's mostly ethnicity. That is, my parents were immigrants, uh, Dutch immigrants to Canada in the 1950s. Uh, and I uh, grew up in a bilingual household, uh, a home that was very informed by all things Dutch. Uh, and uh, my, uh, I had, I still have many relatives in the Netherlands, so we went back there quite frequently. So um, I knew fairly early on I wanted to be, when I I wanted to become a historian. Um, and when I went to grad school, I knew I wanted to become a, a Reformation historian. And um, because I had the language skills already, it seemed like uh, a natural fit to study the Reformation in the Low Countries. And I will say partly because this was a reaction to the fact that people who study European, early modern European history, especially in the United States, tend to concentrate on the big language areas, France, Germany, uh, England, Spain. Uh, and I thought there's a niche there for uh, a, a, a scholar who does uh, a more peripheral uh, language area in Europe. So, Great. Um, so in this book on the Reformation, you uh, note that it's a synthesis of work on the Low Countries. Uh, why did you feel that this book was needed to be written now? Well, um, the, the last time anyone wrote a longish book length uh, synthesis of the Reformation in the Low Countries was 1957, and that was uh, by written by a professor at the University of Liège, a historian named Léon Ernst Alquin, who wrote a book about basically the Reformation under Charles V in in what he called Belgique, 
uh, which uh, the, so um, or to Belgium, and so um, and. In the intervening time since 1957, there have been a lot of studies that are much more specialized uh, based on very extensive local, local archival research. Everyone was doing local history and there were very few efforts at synthesizing what ended up being 60 years worth of very fine research. And for years, I've, you know, I've been practicing history for more than 30 years. And for years, I've been saying someone needs to write a good book length synthesis. And I had a lot of colleagues in early modern European history, uh, especially Anglophone colleagues who were very interested in getting a reference for what do I need to read to understand the Reformation in the Low Countries? And, well, there wasn't that much available there. There's a handful of articles um, and some some collections of essays that are close to a synthesis, but I decided that this was something I could take on uh, later in my career, you know, 30 years in and not not at the beginning. So, so this is the result. It's a, partly an effort to explain the whole thing to myself, but also to my fellow early modernists and potentially to use it in the classroom as well. Yeah, great. Um so in the book, you focus on an area called the Low Countries. Uh, so where is this area and what was it like at the start of the 16th century? Okay. The Low Countries in the early 16th century is the term we use for the region that today is roughly uh, the modern Benelux. That is the Kingdom of the Netherlands, the Kingdom of Belgium, the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg, and uh, a few bits of what's now the French Republic, the northern part of the French Republic. And in this, in 1500, that region was more or less under the control, the personal dynastic control of the Habsburg family. Uh, they had created a composite state, they and their ancestors had created a composite state over the course of about two centuries, starting in the 1300s. And by the time we get to 1500, uh, the Habsburgs who inherit this region from the Dukes of Burgundy, who had originally uh, took, taken it over, create a, a kind of personal union. It's not a terribly well-developed state. It's not very heavily centralized. It's more like a union of titles um, that, uh, that the Habsburgs and their Burgundian ancestors had assembled. All right. And... What would you say that society and religion was like at the beginning of the 16th century? Well, in 1500, of course, this is Northwest Europe. Everyone is a baptized Catholic and uh, the Catholic Church and its universality uh, dominates the cultural and religious and to some extent social and economic life of every early modern European Christian, which and so... At the eve of the Reformation, you might say that the, the Catholic Church in the Low Countries, like in the rest of Europe, was actually in fairly good shape in the sense that it was extraordinarily rich. It was vital. People wanted to worship God. There was a great deal of lay participation in whatever opportunities to worship God that the, the church offered. And that included things like going on procession, attending the sacraments, being part of a, soror a consorority or a confraternity. 
Um, and we see this all across Europe. In other words, all of the activities, the church building, the chapel endowments, the attendance of mass, if you could measure religiosity by the, the sheer amount of activity, then indeed the, the Low Countries in 1500 comes across a, a, as a very religious place. The Catholic Church seems to have been uh, a vital uh, organization, which is not to say it didn't have its critics and its problems, because it did. Um, things like clerical abuse, uh, things like bishops who did not tend to their diocese terribly well. Uh, but uh, on the whole, the, the impression that, that Catholicism gives at the beginning of, of, of the 16th century is one of vitality and, and relatively good health. And, and that was not unique to the low countries. That was true across Europe. Okay, but we start to see uh, humanist ideas, and in this area, we see specifically Erasmus, uh, who is well known from coming out of this area. What were some of the humanist ideas that were going on at this time? Well, yeah, so humanism was a movement that came out of Renaissance Italy in the 1400s. And the, the humanists of Europe, uh, it spreads really to the rest of Europe by 1500. And the humanists of Europe, including Erasmus, uh, were very keen to reform and renovate society in various ways. And that included um, uh, re renovating or reforming the church. Uh, the, the term they often used was reformatio. And the idea, the, the idea behind this was that through learning, through education, through scholarship, the humanists argued we could bring about a revival, a, a rejuvenation, if you will, of both society and church. So it was a scholarly movement, but it enjoyed and it and, and it was focused very much on a reevaluation of the classical past and of classical Greek and Latin. And the, the humanists, particularly in Northern Europe, like Erasmus, um, they read their classical text, and that included the Christian Bible, uh, which was a, a you know product of the first century uh, uh, of, the, of the Roman Empire. And so what they saw in the Bible about the early church appealed to them a great deal. And so their desire for reform was based very much on those biblical models of what they saw as a simpler, purer, church less encumbered by wealth less encumbered by political and entanglement um so these ideas had some influence among the people of the low countries so what were the first groups of dissenters who were they what were they what did they support yeah well starting around 1520 you know martin luther was over next door in the holy roman empire um printing pamphlets and, and dissenting more and more loudly from the Catholic Church in, in Saxony. And a lot of his pamphlets and ideas made their way into the Low Countries through commercial networks, especially into Antwerp, which had a very large printing industry. And uh, Luther's ideas, his words are translated into Dutch and French, uh, the two languages of the Low Countries, and they, they find an audience. You know, now there was an audience already in place that had been reading their humanists, that had been, uh, you know, that was religiously very serious. And so the, the, the dissent of Luther, his criticisms, but also his sort of positive statements about 
for example, the priesthood of all believers, about questioning how much authority the, the clergy should have, that found resonance. Um, and um, uh, there were people reading these tracts, and it wasn't just Luther Zwingli's, uh, Huldrych Zwingli from Zurich, who's contemporary uh, of Luther. His writings are also being circulated. And what ends up happening in the 1520s is that the, these these books, the pamphlets really get circulated and they find an audience, particularly among the clergy in the Low Countries. There were a lot of clerics, uh, fairly serious-minded religious professionals who were um, who had already been sort of primed by Erasmus and the humanists, and they saw in Luther and Zwingli's criticisms, but also their sort of positive statements of doctrine, a very congenial type of enhancement of Christianity, that, that we could be better Christians if we follow these ideas like uh, upholding the authority of the Bible uh, over, uh, over the Pope, of, of criticizing what they saw as the sort of financial and moral failings of the clergy. Now, in the early days, none of this was really dissenting in some ways. Um, it was more like evangelical-minded people who wanted to be better Christians. And there wasn't necessarily an interest initially in actually breaking away from the church. Um, and, you know, there were uh, all over the Low Countries in the 1520s, we have reports of local priests and local monasteries and bishops preaching these evangelical ideas, but all within a kind of framework of what they saw as, as still orthodoxy. I mean, they, they, they were good Catholics. There, there was no interest in heresy, and they didn't think they were being heretics. Uh, but in the end, of course, the Catholic Church thought otherwise. Right. So. so were these clerics who were doing the preaching doing it in in the churches yeah yeah some of them are parish priests uh some of the earliest uh uh clerics who are uh preaching these ideas spreading these ideas are in brussels in the augustinian monastery in brussels and antwerp um and yeah it's it's basically a kind of educated um, sometimes clerical, sometimes lay elite, uh, printers, town officials, scholars, priests, uh, heads of monasteries who are spreading these ideas, um, uh, preaching them, meeting in small groups, talking about them. Um, and very quickly, the, the, the sort of, there sort of develops a movement, uh, again, within the parameters of the church mostly, although that will change quickly, where uh, these evangelical ideas, that is, uh, ideas of Christianity as a uh, as a biblical type of religion, uh, uh, the, that spreads pretty rapidly. So, okay, what were what was the reaction of the Emperor Charles V at this time? And you also write that his reaction uh, became an instrument of state building. So, can you explain that yeah. a bit? Yes, Charles V was the the head of the Habsburg dynasty. He was Holy Roman Emperor. He was also the King of Spain, and he was sovereign over the Low Countries um, in the 1520s. And Charles is a very loyal son of the Catholic Church. He uh, sees himself uh, partly as a kind of divine instrument to protect the Church, to keep good order, and 
as in his capacity as sovereign of the Low Countries, he has a great deal of direct authority. And so what he does already by 1522, which is very early, just within a few years of these Lutheran and Zwinglian pamphlets uh, circulating, what he does is uh, crack down. He starts issuing laws and decrees and placards that are intended to quash what he sees, what he and, in fact, the, the, the church leadership see as heresy, right? not just innocent people wanting to be better Christians, but heresy, a grave danger to the, the church fabric. Um, and heresy in the 16th century was uh, uh, considered legally a kind of treason against God. So legally speaking, heretics were rebels against the church. And because of that, they were the, the, the government and the church had the legal means in the Low Countries to try to suppress uh, suppress this dissent. And so what ends up happening by the second half of the 1520s is that Charles, partly within, with cooperation of the, the church, the prelates of the church in the Low Countries, creates a kind of um, um, judicial apparatus that is meant to investigate and then eventually prosecute heresy. There's kind of a misnomer that, that this is referred to often, not entirely accurately, as the Inquisition. Um, and it's not quite the Inquisition as it appeared in Spain or in Italy. It was more like a hybrid bit of state, or uh, and particularly Habsburg, and church authorities trying to investigate heresy. And the rule, the laws were very strict. I mean, you, if, you, if you were convicted of heresy, you could be killed. Uh, you could be executed. You could get your property confiscated. You could be banned. Um, there were very real and dangerous penalties, legal penalties for being a heretic uh, or in the eyes of the church and the state. And so what happens, especially in the later 1520s and into the 1530s and 40s, is the Habsburg government, in cooperation with the church, tries to uh, use all these legal means to basically investigate, arrest, and interrogate anyone suspected of heresy. Right? And Charles um, is interested, separately, he is interested in building up his power and his authority. And he feels that, he comes to believe, and, and this becomes sort of standard Habsburg policy, that using these legal means to suppress heresy, to create this judicial network that was supposed to quash rebellion and dissent, was also a way to enhance and centralize their own power. Uh, and in other words, it becomes also a political instrument where Charles and later his successor, Philip II, see this judicial uh, apparatus, this, this, this legal prosecution uh, uh, process as a means of enhancing their own authority because they are not tolerating dissenters, right? They are demonstrating that they are loyal sons of of the church. So it was intended not just simply to, to suppress uh, her heretical movements, but also in, in the process, give greater authority to the Habsburg uh, regime in the Low Countries. Right. So were the, peop the, the people carrying out the, or researching or looking for heretics, were these state officials, government officials, or were they part of the clerisy? Well, uh, that's kind of an interesting question. It's it's the, the this legal um, uh, the Habsburg legal apparatus. It's a hybrid. It's it's mostly religious officials who are who act as inquisitors, 
but they're kind of they're they're charged they're given um, they're given their authority by the Habsburg government. So and you have to realize, you know, church and state in the 16th century, that's a, that, that, that's a lot less, uh, there's a lot less boundaries between the two than there are now. Um, and so there's a cooperation going on. Uh, the papacy authorizes the Habsburg government to, to set up this inquisition or this, this, this uh, prosecutorial apparatus. And it's typically priests uh, and clerics who are the actual inquisitors who go out and interrogate and investigate and, and uh, discover who, who, who might be a heretic. But at the same time, the actual prosecution of them, the trial of anyone charged with heresy was in state hands, in the hands of local authorities. But a problem with this, this inquisitorial apparatus was that it was um, it was a national thing. That is, it rode, it kind of circumvented or rode past local uh, local traditions of justice. You know, one of the one of the great freedoms that localities had in the Low Countries was to exercise their own justice. And here comes this mechanism in the 1520s that just simply ignores established legal custom and legal practice and says, no, there's an emergency here. These heretics are a threat to church and state, to people's souls, and therefore we empower these inquisitors to come and investigate people and arrest them. Uh, and try them for heresy. Oh, fascinating. Um, so after the 1520s and the 1530s, this kind of the beginning of confessionalization, and you discuss two broad categories in the Low Country uh, for in the Protestant side, the Mennonites and the Reformed Protestants. Uh, could you talk about these two groups and what they specifically believed? Sure, sure. The what has the what the what happens is in the the 50, or starting around 1530, a more radical wing of Protestant descent comes out of Germany um, that are known as uh, well. These are kind of they, these people are they, 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 we call them Anabaptists, although that's not a very satisfying term. Anabaptism is a kind of umbrella term that we use to describe the radical wing of the Reformation that really emerges in the, in, or by 1530 in the Low Countries. And these were people who were convinced that the end of the world was coming. They, they had ap- apocalyptic ideas. They were not satisfied with what they saw as the, the slowness of Lutheran or Zwinglian reform. They, uh, they took their Bible very seriously and very literally and believed that the end times were coming. And in the 1530s, these groups start to um, start to agitate in the Holy Roman Empire and uh, specifically in the, the city of Münster, which is right across the border from the Low Countries, but also in the Low Countries themselves. And they get cracked down on in the later 1530s. And what ends up happening is that these radicals who had been, you know, who scared the authorities a lot because they had weird ideas like they weren't going to serve in armies, they weren't going to, um, they weren't going to um, swear oaths. They believed that, and most radically of all, that a Christian should be baptized as an as an adult, as a knowing adult, rather than as an infant. I mean, these were all very, very weird ideas to most right-thinking people of the time. And so these, 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 um, these radicals are, per, are uh, persecuted especially heavily. And by 1540, what happens with that radical movement is that it, it, it kind of settles down into 
a movement uh, that becomes known, uh, uh, is named after one of its principal uh, theologians, that's Menno Simons, or Mennonites. Um, that too is not entirely satisfy, a satisfying term because uh, uh, the Dutch the Dutch word for them is is doopsgezinde, which means kind of baptism minded. I mean, ideally we should use the term Baptists, but that that gets us into all sorts of confusion with the English case. Uh, but in any case, uh, by the 1540s, what had been a radical, highly spiritual movement. That, that was intent on changing the world and, and expecting the end times, by the 1540s, it has changed into Mennonitism, which segregates itself from society, that is, believes that, that Christians should, in, to, so, as much as they can, live deeply spiritual lives. And to follow the Bible, to, to their, their Christianity is very bibliocentric, um, and they 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 uh, they practice their religion in very small communities in private spaces, and they believe, among other things, in, in believers' baptism. But they also believe that their gathered communities of Christians should be as perfect as humanly possible. And so they also exercised a lot of um, kind of spiritual discipline over their members. So that, for example, if uh, you you if you were a member of a Benanite community and you strayed in some way, either through your behavior or your beliefs, you could be shunned, right? And this was a kind of self-protective mechanism Mennonite community used. Um, and so what happens by, say, the 1540s, the 1550s, is that these baptism-minded movements uh, appear, especially in the northern low countries, um, uh, and to a certain extent um, in, in, in Flanders as well. And they are they gain a reputation for for being very, very deeply spiritual people, uh, for being very kind of sober in their habits and in their lifestyle. And also, like I said, to a certain degree, segregating themselves from what they saw as the sins of the larger uh, larger world. And Mennonitism, it's never terribly big, but it, it, it's it, there's a little bit of it everywhere. And certainly by the end of the 16th century, Mennonite groups uh, are, are prevalent. They have a reputation, like I said, for a kind of holiness, um, for a very strict self-discipline among their, among their membership as well. So that's one strain that emerges certainly by mid-century and becomes very important in the, in the Reformation in the Low Countries. The other one uh, by mid-century, the other strain or Protestant movement that's emerging is Reform Protestantism. Right, uh, popularly but not accurately called Calvinism. Uh, Calvin is just simply one of many uh, many uh, figures in the Reform movement. And Reform Protestants, their their inspiration has come mostly out of Switzerland. Uh, first Zwingli in Zurich, and then later John Calvin in Geneva. And Reform Protestantism first starts appearing in the Low Countries in the, in the southern Francophone part of the Low Countries in the 1540s, uh, and then really starts to take off in the 1550s. And this is partly due to the fact that there is a kind of, you might say, Calvinist international. That is, there are dedicated efforts on the part of uh, reformed states like Geneva uh, and Zurich to, to missionize, you know, first to France, but eventually they, they make their way into the Low Countries as well. 
And Reformed Protestants uh, were also very serious Christians. They they were in some ways much more traditional than uh, than the Mennonites. I mean, they believed in a much more organized church structure, uh, but they were also very bibliocentric and they rejected most of the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. Uh, and Reformed Protestantism in particular, what it offered to believers was a fairly simplified but highly adaptable form of church organization and worship. It wasn't hard to be a Reformed Protestant because all you had to do was gather together and you sang hymns and you heard prayers and you listened to someone explain a, a passage of scripture. And at a certain point, certainly by the, the later 1500s, Reformed Protestantism and Mennonites are actually kind of in competition with each other. Uh, and in particular, from the point of view of the Reformed Protestants, they see the Mennonites, the, the baptism-minded, as, as kind of competitors, as rivals for who's going to be the most, the best Christian, kind of. And um, they thought that, that, of course, you know, all these groups all think each other are wrong, you know, so the, the, the Reformed Protestants think that the Mennonites are heretics, and the Mennonites think that the Reformed Protestants are all off base, too. Um, and that becomes a problem later on in the, in the late 1500s when Reformed Protestantism actually kind of wins at least in the in the in northern in the northern netherlands and becomes the established church great so in addition to these two groups we also have the catholics going beginning the catholic uh reformation they have the council of trent so what is what kind of ideas and reform practices is the catholic church going through at this time well, that's a good question because there there was already in the Catholic Church a long tradition of Reformation, right? Um, going back, stretching back since really its beginnings. And so when we talk about Reformation, at least in my book, I use the term Reformation as an umbrella term to talk about religious change in the 16th century more generally. It's not just Protestant. There is also... Uh, Reformation going on within the Catholic Church. You know, that's not heretical, that's not dissenting, but that is also very meaningful. And so what happens is that the, the challenge of Protestant heresy kind of speeds up this process of re Catholic Reformation that had already been going on. Right? And so uh, by the middle of the 16th century, Catholic leaders and also Catholic, you know, Catholic church leaders, but also Catholic lay leaders like Charles V, they are, in, are recognizing that the church needs institutional reform. Um, and, and, and the Protestant challenge, this heresy, spurs that up. It speeds it up. And so you have things like uh, very well-known um, uh, events in the in Catholic Reformation, like the Council of Trent in the middle of the 16th century, which establishes once and for all what precisely it is that the Catholic Church believes and teaches, that is, separates it, you know, sets it apart from what all these heretics, these Protestants, uh, believe. And what happens in the Low Countries, and specifically in the second half of the 16th century, is that the Catholic Church, in partnership with the Habsburg government, tries to introduce institutional reform, uh, but also moral reform of the clergy. So, for example, one thing that happens is um, the Habsburgs, in conjunction with the Pope, 
reorganize the Episcopal structure of the Low Countries, and, and we get new bishoprics that are supposed to be more uh, more carefully and rationally aligned with the the, the boundaries, the, the 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 borders of the Low Countries, and that and and the people who are supposed to become these new bishops are all supposed to be reform-minded. Uh, there is an introduction of um, of new religious orders into the Low Countries in the late 1500s, uh, specifically the Society of Jesus and the Capuchins. Uh, and these the religious orders are also very much at the forefront of this desire for reformation within the Catholic Church. And, and this, this Catholic strain of reformation has sort of two, two aims. That is, on the one hand, to, to reinforce piety to reinforce a sense of what it what it meant to be a practicing catholic of reinforcing people's sense of devotion but the other part of it was to make it clear that protestantism was heresy that 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 there was a clear dividing line between the two and so catholic reformation is both sort of internal and in that it's this ongoing process of the church always trying to do better but at the same time, it's also outwardly directed against what was a clearly a very serious um, uh, dissenting movement. Right. So how did uh, religion play a role in sparking the revolt in the Netherlands? <laughs> well, um, I sometimes like to say that, that you, you wouldn't have had a revolt without a reformation. Um, or at least the, the, what, I, what I would argue is that the, the, what sparks the revolt in the low countries, the, the revolt of local, local rulers, both nobles and city governments against the Habsburg regime is its religious policy. In other words, um, what happens by the 1560s is that the nobility of the Low Countries and the big city governments of the Low Countries are chafing under what they see as a very heavy-handed Habsburg legal prosecution of heresy. Right. And there are other things going on as well. There's a resentment at uh, how the Habsburgs have excluded local nobles from some positions in government. There is a resentment at how uh, the Habsburgs seem to be riding roughshod over local traditions and rights and privileges. So that, that ferment, that political unhappiness was already there. But by the time we get to the, the 1560s, we have the added element of religious dissent, which has become very widespread by the 1560s. The Mennonites and, the, and particularly Reformed Protestantism is really becoming very dynamic uh, in the Low Countries. And the Habsburgs, you know, their response is always to clamp down, to, to enforce, uh, enforce legal prosecution. Um, and so what happens in 1565, or 1566 rather, is that um, a group of nobles some of whom were Protestant, but, most, uh, but not all, uh, local nobles from the Low Countries petitioned the government of Charles of Philip II, who was by then sovereign, um, to ease what they called the Inquisition, to moderate the Inquisition. Now, again, it's not entirely exactly the Inquisition; it's this legal legal apparatus. But it was the Inquisition first and foremost that that they objected to because, again, like I said earlier, the Inquisition rode roughshod over local legal privileges. And it was causing a great deal of hardship. People were dying. People were being executed. Uh, confiscation of property it was causing great unrest 
within the population. And so these nobles, um, partly out of conviction, but partly also because they saw themselves as the natural lead local leaders of this society, petitioned the government of Philip II and, and ask that, among other things, the, 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 um, the Inquisition, as they termed it, be moderated. And that happens in early in 1566. And the Habsburg government, in turn, reacts pretty strongly uh, against this. And you have um, a, 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 an outbreak of rebellion, political rebellion, but that is fueled in very large part by religious dissent and unhappiness. So the, the revolt in, in the Low Countries is occurring at the same time as there's also a political revolt. Um, some of these <clears throat> individuals flee to places like England and Germany. How did exile uh, prove important to the development of uh, their ideas? Mm. Well, um, the, the, a lot of these migrants, these, these are people who flee the low countries uh, because of their religious conviction. Um, a lot of them flee or migrate without necessarily expecting that they would come back. In other words, some of them are just leaving the low countries because they want to go to a place where they can worship God the way they want to, whether it's in some city in the Holy Roman Empire or, or in England. Um, and they don't necessarily see themselves as exiles, uh, but more as migrants or pilgrims. But there was another group, especially in the, after the outbreak of hostilities after 1567, there was another group of sort of political and religious exiles who very much saw themselves as being in exile and, and hoping for a day when they might be able to return. And, and again, it's not all of them, but there's enough of them, enough leaders in the reform movement, many of them preachers and elders in uh, in the Reformed Church, who are living in places like Emden and Basel and London and Frankfurt, and they are um, they are planning, they are catching various ideas about what what how would we reform the church back home if we were given that opportunity. And in 1571, a, a group of them, a handful of them, about 50 or so, have a synod. Uh, a synod, the Synod of Emden, it's called. And it was a meeting uh, of uh, reformed leaders from the Low Countries living in exile. Emden, Emden was one of the safe havens they could live in. And at the Synod of Emden, they, they came up with a blueprint of, okay, this is how we're going to create a reformed Christian church. And it was based very much on models that they saw in, in France among the Huguenots, as well as models uh, in from places like Geneva. Uh, and so that synod, which happens in 1571, um, is, is, it's, consensus is kind of reached, at least among some reformed uh, uh, leaders, that this might be a way to implement uh, church reform should they ever get the chance. Now, they didn't really expect to get the chance right away, but then in 1572, within about uh, half a year or so, uh, after the conclusion of the Synod of Emden, uh, the, the political rebels gain a toehold in Holland and Zeeland. They, they declare this, this territory for the rebellion. 
Um, and very quickly, these reformed exiles return to those places, or they go to Holland and Zeeland, and they start setting up congregations and reforming the church according to these models established in Emden. Right. So these uh, people who come back, the sea beggars, they capture Zeeland and South Holland, and this allows the reformed church to come back to to the Low Countries. Um, they start trying to implement their ideas, and you call this a revolutionary reformation. So what what does this look like? Yeah, well, that's not my formulation. Um, that was actually a, a phrase first once used in the 1930s by a historian named H.A. Uh, Enoven Helder. Um, and what it refers to is there's a period between 1572 and 1585 when reform Protestantism kind of reaches its zenith of power and, and, and activity, and also the, 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 its, its largest extent across the Low Countries. So in 1572, when the beggars, armies, the troops of the Prince of Orange recapture uh, most of Holland and Zeeland, um, these, these reformed leaders come in and they disestablish the Catholic Church, right? So no more, the priests are given pensions. They're told you can't be a priest anymore. You get a pension. A lot of them flee, right? They flee to, to Catholic territories to be safer. Um, and then the Reformed Protestants take over the churches, take over the church fabric, if you will. And they are given permission by this new regime of rebels to remake the church according to their understanding of what, what reform looks like. And so they set up, they take over all those medieval churches that had been Catholic, um, they uh, and and they are given a kind of monopoly by local governments, a monopoly over worship, right? In other words, the only way you can worship God in public in places like Holland and Zeeland, uh, and then later in Flanders and Brabant, uh, the only way you can do that is to be a member or to, to attend the Reformed Church. So but that left out a lot of people because they were Catholic. You know, most people were not Reformed Protestants. They were a minority of the population through into the 1600s. But everyone else, you know, whether they might have been a Lutheran or a Catholic or a Mennonite, um, they were not allowed to worship in public. So partly what this Revolutionary Reformation is, is an effort to create a Reformed regime Right, a, a reformed ecclesiastical regime, and so when uh, and then later in the 1570s, when uh, uh, when the rebels gain control of the big cities of uh, Brabant, like Ghent and Bruges uh, and Antwerp, um, they uh, they institute what were called Calvinist republics, where they tried also to basically create a political and and ecclesiastical order that was entirely reformed and that suppressed any kind of Catholic worship or Catholic activity. It, it lasts till about 1585 when uh, the fortunes of the war change and the, the, the Habsburgs are able to reconquer or re, retake uh, Brabant and Flanders uh, from, uh, from rebel control. And so what we get is uh, in, it's only in the northern seven northern provinces of low countries that the reformed are still uh, still have that ecclesiastical monopoly. It's also about, I think you write the 1576, that all, many of the Netherlands provinces come together uh, against the Habsburgs and they try to solve the religious issue. Can you talk a little bit about this? Yeah, 
it's in, in 1576, you have the, what's called the pacification, pacification of Ghent. Um, and um, what this was, was a kind of, it was a military alliance. By, by the time we get to 1576, there is deep unhappiness in all quarters with uh, the government of Philip II, the, the ruler of the Low Countries. And, you know, half the country is in revolt or half the region is in revolt. Um, and um, the, the, the war itself is taking a very heavy toll, an economic and social toll on, uh, on the countryside itself. Uh, the troops of the King of Spain um, are uh, very disorderly and unruly. They, uh, they plunder, they riot, um, and partly this is due to the fact that the Philip II runs out of money and can't pay for them, and so the soldiers just kind of go am run amok over various places, uh, most, most famously in Antwerp. And so what happens in 1576 is that Catholic and Protestant leaders in the Low Countries, that is the local, the nobles who had, you know, had always saw themselves as, as, um, as the, the traditional local leaders of the Republic, they actually get together. Even the Catholic nobles are so fed up with what they see as the sort of uh, incompetence of Philip II's military efforts uh, and by the lawlessness of his soldiers that the Catholic nobility and the Protestant rebels uh, the, uh, uh, get together and they sign this, this pacification of, of, of Ghent. It's kind of a ceasefire. And the goal of the pacification was to get Philip II to to stop, to, you know, to reorganize what he was doing, to, to rethink, to end, end the lawlessness among the soldiery and to, to just have a kind of ceasefire to, the, to all the fighting. Um, it does not last very long, the pacification of Kent. Within about three years, it frays apart, mostly because the, the rebel coalition, that is this, this very uneasy alliance of Catholics and, and Protestants, um, splits on the religious issue. Uh, because uh, the, the you know again this is this late 1570s this is the height of very militant reform Protestantism and they're not interested in for example tolerating Catholics in their midst um, and and the the Catholic uh, parts of this coalition are also they tend still tend to see Protestantism as heresy so it's a very brief unity of People very unhappy, you know, low, people of the Low Countries, leaders in the Low Countries, unhappy with the Habsburg regime, um, but it, it frays apart pretty quickly on question on sectarian questions of, of religion. Right. So, what is then the Union of Utrecht? Well, uh, the Union of Utrecht was a again a military alliance concluded in 1579 among the mostly northern provinces of the Low Countries that had declared themselves independent of, of Philip II. Uh, those, those also included in the Union were a couple of cities in Flanders and Brabant. And what ends up happening is the Union of Utrecht is supposed to be a military alliance, it's supposed to be a sort of temporary agreement among these rebelling provinces and regions uh, to offer each other mutual support and aid in their in their ongoing military struggle against uh, the Habsburgs, um, but it was also there that the issue of religion becomes kind of sticky because the 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 rebellion needs the support of Reform Protestants to have a certain degree of legitimacy. They 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 can't they can't deny the the Protestant nature of 
uh, or the Protestant element of the rebellion. So the Union of Utrecht uh, forms the, the basis, a, a kind of unofficial constitution for how these seven provinces in the northern Low Countries are going to uh, ally with each other and support each other in their in their um, their united front against Spain. But this, a sticking point was the question of religion, because there were in these northern provinces, not everyone is Reformed Protestant. In fact, the vast majority of people are still Catholic, but they have been disestablished, right? They're not allowed to worship, and, and their church has been suppressed. And so the Union of Utrecht kind of tries to square the circle by saying, well, on matters of religion, every province and every locality will regulate its own affairs. Um, and that was meant to be a kind of compromise solution to the question of religious difference and religious antagonism. Uh, but in practice, the way it works out um, is that um, the, the Reformed Church in these seven northern provinces is given a privileged position uh, where they are favored by the state and they get resources from the state, while everybody else, every other kind of Christian, um, is forced to effectively privatize his religion, right? to, to privatize um, their faith. Now, another stipulation in the Union of Utrecht, a religious stipulation that was very clear, was that uh, in these regions there will be freedom of conscience. That is, consciences beliefs will not be coerced. And this is very much a direct reaction to that Habsburg inquisitorial regime. But what does freedom of conscience mean? Um, you know, within, you know, between your two ears, you're allowed to believe whatever you like. You know, in the privacy of your home, you're allowed to, to believe whatever you like. But the actual exercise of your beliefs, that is going to worship, worshiping God, um, that is still, um, that is still monitored and managed and controlled. Right. So your conscience is free, but what that meant in practice was you still couldn't practice your religion the way you wanted to. So in the North, we have the Union of Utrecht, and they have kind of the Reformed Church. And in the Southern provinces, the Catholic Church is still the main religion. Um, so how did the the Catholic Church and the state in the South uh, work to continue implementing reforms well, what happened starting in the 1580s, when the Habsburg government regains territory in the south, um, basically what's now Walloon, uh, the Walloon part of Belgium, but also big chunks of Flanders and Brabant, which were the two most important provinces of the region. Uh, by the by, certainly by 1585, 1590, the Habsburgs are back in very secure control of those regions. And the policy of the Habsburg government, um, starting really in, in this period, is that these, these regions will be reclaimed for the Catholic Church. We will re-Catholicize them. And so the policy, so there's still an anti, it's the same old anti-heresy policy that the Habsburgs had earlier, but now it's it's implemented um, in ways that are, you know, less bloodthirsty. I mean, the last person to be executed for heresy is in 1597, and then there isn't any more of that. Uh, but the, ha the Catholic authorities in what's called the, the, the Southern Netherlands or the Archducal Netherlands, um, they work with this regime, and what they tell Protestants, they basically apply a lot of pressure. 
And basically, they, the Protestants who are still in the South are given the choice to either convert to Catholicism or leave. And a very large chunk of them do leave. Something like on the order of 100 to 150,000 people leave migrate out of the southern Netherlands where that is under Habsburg control. Most of them go to the north, to the northern Netherlands, which are independents. Some of them go to, to the Holy Roman Empire. Some of them go to England. Most of them are Protestants, although they are also, uh, many of them are economic refugees. The fighting in Flanders and Brabant in the 1580s and 1590s has been especially destructive. And so a lot of people are fleeing for their livelihood uh, as well. But that that emigration, that mass migration, that exodus, um, relieves a lot of the problem for the Catholic uh, Habsburg regime because a whole bunch of Protestants have left. Right? They're not in the population anymore. And there's just a remnant of, of, of Protestant population left, mostly in the big cities. Um, and they, too, are um, what the Catholic authorities insist that they they have to conform eventually to the Catholic Church as well. And there's a certain degree of prosecution of these tiny Protestant groups, uh, but it's not nearly as heavy-handed as it had been in the 16th century. The other thing that the Catholic regime in the South is doing is furthering that tradition of Catholic Reformation. So they have they are rebuilding churches. They are introducing new monastic orders. This, this is a great era in the 1580s to about uh, the 1650s, this great era of church and monastery building um, in the southern low countries. Uh, and, and so there's a very deliberate effort to re-Catholicize and, and the, 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 the archdukes who rule the southern Netherlands cooperate very closely with the Catholic Church in this process of re-Catholicization. And it's very popular, too. I mean, among ordinary lay Christians in the South, there is much happiness about the restoration of the church. Um, and it's, it's popular. Um, and so, and, and because of that, you know, that this is one of the reasons why Belgium, the present day state of Belgium is so heavily Catholic and, and the, uh, the Netherlands, the present day state of the Netherlands is, is less so. Um, it, it, you know, the, what, what ends up becoming Belgium becomes one of the most Catholic states, uh, in Europe, right? And it's a direct result of this Catholic Reformation effort. Wow. So <clears throat> while the Catholic Reformation continues in the South, the North, while diverse, has some uh, pretty intense theological debates in the Reformed Church. <laughs> yeah. So can you talk a bit about what they're sure, debating? Sure. So by 1600 or so, uh, the Northern Independent Netherlands is, is, has become what we refer to as the Dutch Republic. And the Dutch Republic is officially Protestant in terms of its religious identity. That is, the Reformed Church has a monopoly on all public religious expression. And uh, by the 1600s, what's happening is that uh, there are debates within the Reformed Church, the Dutch Reformed Church, there are growing debates on fairly abstract points of theology, um, one of them about the question of predestination. And predestination was, uh, in the Reformed tradition, is a doctrine that argues that God has already predestined people to either uh, heaven or hell after they die. That's, that's grossly simplifying, but that's basically it. Um, now, that doctrine of predestination was 
already controversial in the 1500s. Not everyone in the Reformed tradition was on board with it. And by about 1609 or 1610, um, real loud academic disputes break out. Um, they start in the University of Leiden, which had been the, the, the was the flagship university of, of this new state. And theologians, two theologians, uh, Jacobus Arminius and Franciscus Comaris, who were on the faculty there at the University of Leiden, um, get into a very public and nasty dispute, a very bitter dispute about the nature of predestination. Arminius said um, predestination is is not, it, he argued for a less harsh version of it, basically, whereas Gomaris insisted, no, that, you know, God, God saves some and he, and he condemns uh, others. Um, and what seems like a fairly abstract point kind of got grafted into a larger controversy that was going on in the 16-teens about the course of the war against Spain. Um, because in 1609, the Dutch Republic entered a truce, a 12 years truce, with the Spanish monarchy. And this was a ceasefire for about 12 years. Both sides had been exhausted. It was an effort to kind of recoup um, and, um, uh, and, and kind of restore both sides after many decades of, of very heavy fighting. And the truce was controversial because there was a very loud party within the Reformed Church uh, that insisted that, that Reformation had to go on and that the war would have to go on because we need to reform the entirety of the Low Countries, i.e. the Southern Netherlands. Um, and that party within the Reformed Church had a kind of champion in the, in the person of Maurice of Nassau, who was the stockholder, the son of Philip, uh, uh, excuse me, son of William of Orange, um, and who was the head of the, the House of Orange. And is, he's not, he's a prince, he's not really a ruler, but he's the head of the army, and he enjoys enormous social uh, prestige and influence. And Maurice of Nassau comes out during the 16-teens in favor of, of res resuming the war, of, of, not, uh, not, uh, of, of no coexistence, shall we say, with, or detente with, uh, with the Catholic South, but that, in fact, the cause of God and the cause of Reformation should mean that we prosecute the war again when the truce starts. And now, now there's another party, another political party, and mostly concentrated in the province of Holland, led by a, a, a politician named Johan van Oldenbarneveld, who is what's called the land's advocate. And he's, he's, kind of, he's kind of a prime minister figure. He's really what he is, is the leading official of the province of Holland. But the province of Holland was much richer and much he more heavily populated than the other six provinces. And so it became effectively uh, the ruling province of, of the Republic. And Oldenbarneveld was very much a believer that, um, that this, this conflict, it could not go on forever, that there was going to have to be some accommodation, some sort of religious accommodation, that the, the Republic could not afford to be perpetually uh, at war. And so there's a kind of peace party and a war party developing in the 16-teens. And that gets tangled up with these larger debates about predestination. Um, and Oldenbarneveld, for example, uh, protects Arminius and his and his followers, and the people known as the Arminians, um, whereas Maurice of Nassau and the and the uh, the, the more conservative Reformed uh, Protestants, Calvinists, as they were called by their enemies, 
uh, insist on uh, on um, you know the, a renewed prosecution of the war in Spain. And so, so what ends up happening is by 1618. Um, Maurice of Nassau moves in and he stages a coup d'etat and he gets rid of Oldenbarnevelt and he tells all the Arminians in in the Reformed Church that they have to conform to this this uh, doctrine of predestination or leave. Right? And a huge national synod is is established, set up in 1618 and in the fall of 1618, the Synod of Dordrecht, as, as it's called. Um, that was specifically designed to basically root out dissenters, root out the followers of Arminius from the church, and establish the the very uh, Calvinist orthodoxy uh, of the Dutch Reformed Church. And it, it worked. I mean, the Arminians are kicked out. Most of them either go into exile or they they go underground. Um, and um, the the sort of very Calvinist character of the Dutch Reformed Church is established thanks to that synod. And this event marks what the end of the Reformation in the Low Countries. Well, well, <laughs> it's the end point for me. Let's put right. it that way. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, what I because something else is what's happening by 1618, certainly, or let's say more more roughly around 1620. You know, the end of the 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 the, the second decade of uh, of the 17th century. What's happening is what was kind of one story of religious change becomes two. Because by 1621, say, when the 12 years truce expires and the war resumes, by 1621, it's pretty clear that the two states that emerge out of this conflict, the Dutch Republic in the north and the southern Netherlands, or the Archducal Netherlands or Habsburg Netherlands in the south, that these two states, this division is permanent. There, there are hotheads on both sides saying, "Oh no, we have to reconquer, you know, them for our people," but it, it never works. And by 1648, the war comes to an end. Um, but it's pretty clear, certainly religiously, that we have two separate stories happening. And so I wouldn't say the Reformation ends, but I do think my the Reformation in the Low Countries as a as a unitary narrative. Um, ends by 1621. And what we have is very heavy Catholic Reformation in the South, so that, like I said, Belgium becomes a very, very Catholic uh, state. And a kind of odd eclectic Reformation in the North, where things are officially Protestant, but there is a regime in place that allows non-reformed Protestants, or non-reformed Christians, to exercise their religion in private. So you have a, a, a in the north, what you have is a regime that is officially Protestant, but is actually multi-confessional. Whereas in the southern Netherlands, you have a state that says we are Catholic, and that is our marker of identity. And I feel like after that, it's two separate stories. Right? Well, I had to end the story somewhere, and before I had to get to to the. I mean, I, you know, one could argue that it, it maybe 1648 is a better ending time, or a. Um, you know, but it, I feel like for this, for the, at least for what what's happening in the 16th century, that is a lot of that is resolved by 1621, and we still have Reformation undoubtedly, but but it it's going on very different tra- trajectories, and 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 there's a big political split where the the unity of the narrative just becomes impossible. All right. So, um, the Reformation, of course, doesn't just happen in the Low Countries. So. What um, what similarities and differences does it have with the broader Reformation that happens in Europe, would you say? Well, 
in many respects, the, the Reformation in the Low Countries is a nice microcosm for the Reformation in Europe as a whole in the 16th century, um, in that um, virtually every type of religious reform movement that, that emerges in, this, in the 1500s makes its way to the Low Countries. You know, Lutheran, Spanglian, Reformed, um, Anabaptists, uh, you name it. Um, and so, and, be, and because the Low Countries is economically uh, so prosperous and so so densely populated with with very elaborate commercial networks, um, it's possible for all those ideas to come in. So, in some ways, what we're seeing is, um, you know, a lot of what's happening in terms of ideas, in terms of doctrines, we see in the rest of Europe. There's a lot of similarities. Um, you know, the, 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 the kind of reformed Calvinist or reformed uh, uh, Protestant doctrines that, that these, these Dutch uh, dissenters adopt, it's, you know, it's straight out of the Huguenot, uh, uh, out of France, out of Geneva. Um, the, 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 again, the, the, the Mennonite ideas uh, or the, the, the Anabaptist ideas are, are very much borrowed heavily from, uh, from other parts of Europe. Catholic Reformation, you know, a lot of that is borrowed very heavily from the larger Roman Catholic Church. So in many respects, it's it's a derivative Reformation. It doesn't come up with many new ideas of its own. I think the one exception to that is Menno Simons is kind of the sole native theologian of distinction. Um, the rest are basically borrowing, you know, from reformers of, uh, outside of the Low Countries. Um, so, and, and the, you know, the, the trajectory of religious change um, is, is similar in that, uh, for example, I mean, there, there's a kind of popular sentiment, or at least large parts of the population in, in the 1520s and 30s are very sympathetic to reform. It's kind of a reformation from below. And we see that in other places, too. There are cities in the Holy Roman Empire where that happens uh, as well. Um, and, you know, the, the, the pace of Catholic Reformation, um, particularly in the southern Netherlands in the later 16th century, that is very similar to the types of Catholic Reformation we see in places that, in Catholic territories of the Holy Roman Empire and, uh, 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 you know, Italy and, and Spain even. What I think is distinctive about uh, the Reformation in the Low Countries, um, well, is two things. One is the fact that the prosecution, the legal prosecution of Protestants uh, or people who were designated Protestants, heretics, dissenters, that was more extensive um, in the Low Countries than anywhere else in Europe. Um, something on the order of 1,300 people are executed for their beliefs uh, in the course of the 16th century, just in the Low Countries. In France, at the same time, it's at most 500. Right. So the degree of legal prosecution, uh, you know, again, what the Protestants end up referring to as Inquisition, the degree of effort by the Habsburgs to suppress, uh, legally suppress Protestant heresy was far greater in the Low Countries than, than in any other state in Europe. And that left scars, that, that, left, uh, that left, you know, a kind of a, a belief, for example, in the later Dutch Republic that we, we can't do this kind of coercion again because it's, it's destructive and it costs lives. So that's one thing, that the very heavy judicial persecution of Protestantism in the Low Countries. I mean, there are, pers there are persecutions all over, but it's, it's particularly sharp in the Low Countries. And then the second thing is that the 
the wars that result partly from the Reformation in, in the Low Countries have a very have a unique outcome in that they create an entirely new state. There, you know, there are religious wars all over Europe in the in the 16th century and and, and into the 17th century. And, you know, you know them well, the French Civil Wars, you know, the Thirty Years' War. I mean, there's, there's lots, there's lots of conflict, and and in that in that regard, the Low Countries are, are not unique. But what are they? Are, what is unusual is that a an entirely new state gets created, what becomes known as the Dutch Republic. In other words, the political map of Europe changes as a result of this. Uh, as a result of wars that were in part fueled by a desire for religious change and reformation. So, you know, I often like to say, you know, no reformation, no Netherlands, or <laughs> no reformation, no Belgium. In other words, the, 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 this is a rare instance of the political map of Europe actually being changed because of religious wars. Right. So, um, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I'd like to ask you the uh, last question we typically ask our guests, and that is, uh, what are you working on next? <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, um, first of all, there's a, a Dutch translation of the book coming out uh, in, in, at the end of in, on May 31st, so I'm very pleased about that, 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 that there's going to be a, a Dutch translation, so I've been busy with that. My, I'm thinking, I haven't quite settled on anything yet, but I, my, I'm thinking about trying to write a book about one year in the later 16th century, and that's the year 1572. 1572 is a very uh, eventful year in the history of Europe, early modern Europe. Uh, it's the year of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in, in, in France, when lots of Huguenots are um, uh, killed by Catholics. The, in 1572 is the year where the Dutch sea beggars and the beggars actually gain a foothold and, and start to gain territory from the Spanish. Um, 1572 is a year of the admonition of parla- to Parliament in England, which was an early effort by Puritans to create, uh, to introduce into England a a Calvinist regime, you might say. There's a papal election that year. Um, In 1572, the Danish astronomer Tycho Brahe uh, witnesses and records the first uh, supernova that we know of. Um, and so and there's all sorts of weird things going on in Europe in, in that year. And, and, and this, I've always been fascinated by the second half of the, the 16th century anyway. And so I'm thinking about an intellectual or a literary experiment where that one year and all the events in it becomes a lens into which we can talk about the period as a whole. Right. So, um, so it's 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 kind of a literary experiment. It, it's not traditional history writing in the sense that I go squirrel away in archives and come back with things, but more an effort to say, how does Christendom end? How does it come apart in the second half of the 16th century? And, and I'm kind of intrigued by the idea that the events of this year, of that year in particular, 1572, might be a lens into that into those the, that larger tumultuous era. Wow, that sounds really fascinating. <laughs> well, we'll see if I can pull it off, but hey. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about uh, your book, Reformation in the Netherlands, out by Cambridge University Press. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed talking with you. <laughs>